0: The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Well, thank you very much for having me once again. I chose Calvin partly, uh, and uh, now I'm sort of... Uh, slightly regretting that, because Calvin is better known, and I was kind of uh, trying to introduce you to sort of a second tier of more obscure reformers. Um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, Calvin is of such influence, even in our society, he's probably the most influential of all the reformers uh, in terms of cultural, theological, intellectual life going forward. That it is always worth a revisit of this um, of this guy to re- remind you of. How I've set up this discussion, the issue uh, for the issues for the for the reformers are the same issues that perplex us and uh, obsess us today: the issues of authority, identity, and destiny. Authority: uh, How do we how do we know things, and uh, what what? How how does human knowledge? How is it uh, transmitted? To what authorities can we appeal? In our day, it's the institution of science. Um, inverted commas, that is uh, the white-coated mob who uh, make declarations and uh, transmit it to us through the media, these become sort of infallible declarations, Uh, and so we believe if it is scientific that's not to say that there isn't such a thing I'm just saying that there's this cultural gesture called science that we uphold as the sort of ultimate authority today. Uh, In the 16th century and before the, of course, the ecclesiastical authority and the political authority uh, which dominated the landscape there, uh, was under question. And so given that that had, had fallen away or that was under question, what authority would come in? How would you construct authority in human affairs to act morally, to do right, to think the truth? Um, well, that's a, that's the open question. Then there's the question of who am I? And again, the, uh, the, we're on the verge of the, uh, the uh, election in England to the, the plebiscite. Or what, what are they calling it? The referendum about Brexit. Uh, There's a question of the identity of of uh, of individual, human individuals in relation to larger entities. Uh, am I a Scot or an Englishman or am I British um, or or am I European? Um, that European question, uh, really, again, it's the same it's the same dynamic that's going on in the, uh, the 16th century. Um, how does the, how does Europe live with all these sort of mixed ethnic uh, ethnic identities? Uh, how does it get on? Um, how does it deal with the whole and the parts? And likewise, we have this in a global sense. How do we, how do we uh, identify ourselves as global individuals and yet uh, identify uh, in terms of our locality, in terms of our um, ethnicity, our language and all the rest? And then finally, destiny. How do I go about thinking about my future, about where I am going? What are the things that are going to shape my destiny and how do I relate to them for us it's The Two Great E's. David Malouf, the great Australian novelist, wrote an essay on happiness, and he said, really, we don't have very much happiness because when we think about it, we're really under the uh, control of The Two Great E's, the environment and the uh, economy, and really, what can you and I do to control either of those? We've just kind of got to ride the waves. We're sort of like boats on the top of the ocean at that point. Um, Certainly, for human beings in the 16th century, the question of their destiny in this life and in the next was something that obsessed them, that really uh, vexed them and obsessed them and certainly concerned them. And uh, partly the religious question is the question of how do, I, how do I cope with my uncertain future as a human being, as, a, as, an, as an entity? Um, how do I manage that? How do I relate to that which transcends me, which I can't control? That question is still live for us. Now we come to John Calvin, and John Calvin is of the uh, second generation of reformers. He's born in 1509. Uh, Luther's uh, nailing off his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg happens in 1517, when Calvin's very young, of course. So he's really a second generation on. It really gets going in the 1530s, well after um, Zwingli himself has died. Um, so we see him as a second second generation, if you like. Um, but he has come into our day um, by way of a sort of A half true myth and legend. The legend of John Calvin um, that you often hear is that he's a witch burning, heretic burning, uh, old 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 curmudgeon. That he's a fun killer. uh, That uh, he was a sort of terribly sort of uh, legalistic and um, uh, inhumane, uh, uncaring kind of theologian who has transmitted a theology with those themes in it. Uh, And bequeathed that uh, into Christendom, and uh, really his his uh, his reputation is is not not a great one. Uh, If you see a a, a passing comment in the press about John Calvin, it will inevitably be negative, and the word Calvinism itself, the uh, the, the the body of thought that traces its heritage back to John Calvin, will likewise be. Um, a term of abuse, quite frequently. That's a very Calvinistic way. Of, I mean, I remember uh, being in Oxford and talking to a man, um, and uh, there he uh, was an American, and we were noticing that the British would never speak to us as international dads at the school gate. And he said, "They're probably Calvinists." At that point, which means I said, "But I'm a Calvinist because but anyway." He didn't really respond to that. So, um, I, uh, it goes as far as this. Philip Pullman, the, um, the would-be replacement for C.S. Lewis, the atheistic C.S. Lewis uh, in Oxford, he, uh, he's written a series of children's novels called His Dark Materials. He actually has a sort of depiction of Christianity in that, which is a combination of Catholicism and Protestantism, and he puts the Holy See, which is the sort of centre of all that is evil in the world, he puts it in Geneva, which is Calvin City. So, Calvin uh, sort of is a combination of the worst of, the worst of religion, uh, combined. You can put it in Geneva and you're, you're sure to be speaking, be speaking the truth there. I want to say that while the legend has elements of truth to it, it doesn't sort of uh, appear from nowhere. It is, it is manifestly, uh, unfair and misses the fact that this guy, uh, really bequeaths to us an extraordinary intellectual, cultural and theological legacy Um, And in fact, if we read him closely, you find uh, one of the more humane, uh, enlightening and delightful writers of all of Christendom. Indeed, Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion is one of the most printed, reprinted and translated books um, of human history. So um, I think you should should investigate reading uh, Calvin's Institutes and you'll find yourself surprisingly delighted. It's surprisingly readable, in fact. So what about Calvin? Well, as I said, he was born in 1509. He's a Frenchman from Picardy, and he's um, uh, so thoroughly born of the French people identifies as a kind of uh, that sort of person. Goes to Paris to study, and the University of Paris, like the universities of the day, uh, the other universities of the days in, in a period of foment between the old way of thinking, scholasticism. I explained last last uh, week the the uh, intellectual um, apparatus of the Middle Ages. Uh, which was very interested in questions of metaphysics and philosophy, and the new learning, which was uh, humanism, uh, called humanism, not to be mist- confused with 20th century humanism, but humanism of the, ref- of the Renaissance era, um, characterised, uh, embodied by the, man, the great man Erasmus of Rotterdam. And, of course, that humanism was interested in returning to the sources. Ad fontes is the great cry of humanism, that you go back to the original texts... And that there you find authority. Instead of uh, uh, dealing with Latin translations, you now, through the uh, the technology of the printing press and uh, uh, better learning, uh, better better comparisons of ancient texts, the um, the teaching uh, of of Greek and Hebrew, you now have access to the uh, to the ancient sources, and you can read them afresh and of course in retranslating this discovered that some of the translations that have been used for years are mistaken and that errors indeed in doctrine and in church practice have crept in through these mistranslations erasmus's greek new testament is published in 1517 and calvin uh, in paris teaches uh, learns greek as well as of course the Latin in which all intellectual discussion was taken t- took place and indeed learnt Hebrew as well but he really trains there um, to be a lawyer and so I thought it would be appropriate to talk about Calvin since uh, he really was the, the, the one reformer who was trained in, in legal studies and he had a he had a legal mind in the best sense and his first work in fact was a study of the ancient Roman, um, intellectual uh, and a figure Seneca and uh, that's typical of a humanist that he would he would go back to an ancient writer like Seneca a pagan and he would find in there much to, to learn about uh, humanists are also interested by the way in morality and they're interested in uh, reform of the church and so if they've, they've got a kind of clear moral vision they want to say that theology as it's been done has sort of taken the attention away from the fact that there are abuses going on in church practice at the time, and uh, Calvin's certainly part of that, picks up that flavour in his time in Paris. In about 1530, he has a conversion experience, which he talks about later in his commentary on the Psalms, Um, a conversion experience, and also comes under the influence of Protestant teachers at at that time. Um, In 1534, he has to flee from Paris because of the affair of the placards, which sounds, uh, sounds wonderful, doesn't it, the affair of the placards? they basically, um, people went around sticking Protestant um, placards all the way through Paris at this time including on the bedroom door of the king which was a massive and very scary breach of security to put a, pla- a Protestant placard on the, on the king's door and uh, in, as a result of this as the aftermath of this Calvin fled uh, from Paris and went to Basel in Switzerland and um, uh, with his friend very good friend William Farrell and, and there... Uh, began his sort of uh, life as a reformed uh, a leader of Reformation uh, churches and theology um, Calvin is never ordained by the way he's never kind of ordained as a priest unlike many of the other uh, reformers he's never he never takes up ordination and he never actually takes up ordination even in a Protestant sense he's just declared to have this job and this status a very uh, interesting. Kind of uh, it's never clear what his role is throughout his career what his official title is uh, he just seems to do it through his force of personality and intellect So he's then recruited by his friend Farrell to move to Geneva in 1536 to 38 in fact he's almost trapped he, he just visits visits Geneva for one night and Farrell says to him you need to stay and uh, so Calvin stays and they, they want to, they want to set up a, a truly Protestant, um, city-state in, in Geneva and they work to that end but they they actually are, uh, are moderately successful but there's a controversy in 1538 um, over the pace of reformation in fact Calvin and Farrell want to go a little bit slower they don't want to introduce um, unleavened bread at the communion would you believe it's, it's, it's about that issue uh, they want to hold back uh, and the, the city council wants to go ahead and so in fact Calvin is um, expelled from Geneva in 1538 and he's very bitter about that actually, he feels like he's poured his heart out for the people of Geneva preaching there and teaching and um <coughs> pardon me and, uh, that uh, that they've been very ungrateful so he takes up a pastoral post in um, Strasbourg and preaches at the church and he would preach at the church three times during the week and twice on Sundays so I don't know how he did that, without notes for an hour um, and um that seems to me quite a quite an impressive feat of human endurance um, if, if not for Calvin himself certainly for his listeners that he would speak that long uh, each time without notes and uh, and it be any good. Uh, he returns just briefly going over his life because I want to get onto his thought really. Uh, in 1541 he is recalled to Geneva. Geneva is under a, 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 they receive an in, invitation from Cardinal Satelletto to return to Roman Catholicism and they need to reply to him and Calvin is the sort of hired gun high Protestant gun who writes a letter back to the Cardinal saying why Geneva is going to stay uh, separated from from Rome and uh, and he does that and then is recalled to Geneva again it's not quite clear what his role is supposed to be but he sort of certainly does this pre- regular preaching uh, from the church pulpit uh, in Geneva and uh, settles in there for a long ministry um, and and uh, becomes very influential in Geneva public affairs. Um, it's a bit of a contradiction in Calvin that he wants to certainly keep church and state apart um, in, his, in theory but in practice he wants to really develop a quite close relationship between the church and the state in, in Geneva. He sets up a consistory court which is a, a, a church court uh, to go alongside the, your civil court and uh, that's really about church discipline and so we've got the records of the consistory court if you were heard swearing in the field, you might have a case brought before you. Uh, you know, you're a farmer and you've kind of hit your uh, thumb with a hammer and uh, you swore. Well, you, you might find yourself pulled up before the consistory court, subject to church discipline. Um, uh, so, so he's trying to kind of, uh, in one sense, micromanage the lives of the people in Geneva at that level. Um, it's not an uncontroversial period of time, Um uh, he meets with great opposition in the first first five or so years of his uh, um, period in Geneva, uh, in particular from those who don't who don't believe in any discipline in the Christian life. A group called the Libertines, who who wanted to believe that the Protestant message meant that they were not under any law now and they could do basically, you know, it was a freedom freedom to actually do what one chose to do. And these were very influential families in Geneva who opposed him. Um, he also uh, was opposed by the, um, the, uh, the heretic uh, Michael Servetus. And uh, the controversy over Servetus, who was a Trinitarian heretic, um, uh, came to a head in 1553 and um, Calvin supported um, Servetus being burnt. And this has kind of been a uh, controversy that's marred the character of John Calvin ever since, uh, that he supported the burning of this man, Michael Servetus. Calvin got married, like many of the reformers, um, in 1540, but sadly his wife died in 1549 and he was very, um, very much um, take a, very much aggrieved by her death and um, uh, that was a mark that stayed with him a, a sadness that stayed with him he, they also had a son who died uh, he died in 1564 uh, but I want to turn to his work in particular um, three, three particular pillars of Calvin's work we need to know he saw himself as a preacher, he saw himself as a Bible commentator, and he saw himself uh, then, lastly, as a theologian. And so he preached, and his sermons have been um, published. We have um, some 2,000 published sermons of Calvin. Uh, you can you can find uh, collections of them still. Um, he also then wrote extensive Bible commentaries on most of the books of the Bible, mostly the New, uh, the New Testament and most of the Old Testament or parts of the Old Testament. Um, and he aimed in his commentary to express uh, to um, express a lucid, what he called a lucid brevity in comment in commenting on the Bible. Um, this is a little bit of a dig at one of the other reformers, Martin Buser, who is known for his not lucid, not brevity uh, style of Bible commentary, his sort of voluminous comments on scripture. He wanted to just kind of pin what scripture was about in a, in a, in a brief way, uh, and this was showing his humanist roots. Um, that you really wanted to kind of be pithy in what you said so that people were engaging, rhetorically pleasing. As he did this, though, he realised that there was all sorts of extra material he wanted to say, and so he drew up a plan for what became known as the Institutes of the Christian Religion, first published in 1536, as a kind of bullet point um, summary of the Christian faith. And that's how you used to do theology in the old days. You'd say, um, here are are a bunch of thoughts I've had about theology um, that that I'm trying to draw all the threads of Scripture together. Um, now, that was the first edition, but then the radical change that happened in 1539 was that he, he was much more systematic in what he did. He, he Instead of just kind of having a bunch of bullet points, he actually drew up a structure which flows out of the Apostles' Creed and has a logical sequence to it. And that became, uh, as this book evolved until its final editions late in his life, um, uh, the, the pattern of the institutes—it's um, four, four sections um, that correspond to the Apostles' Creed: uh, God the Father, the knowledge of God the Father, the knowledge of God the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then church ministry and sacraments in the last, um, in the last section. And um, there's a beauty about the way—a a kind of aesthetic, aesthetically pleasing order to the way He's done that—and uh, he's, he's able to draw in the testimony of Scripture all together. And from uh, that, we, we get a, a great view of um, Calvin's thought. You can actually kind of talk about Calvin's theology in a way that's much harder to do with Luther, who's always polemic. My teacher, who was a Lutheran uh, in Oxford, um, we had these seminars, and uh, we'd have various people there, including one fellow who um, was a Roman, Roman Catholic, and he used to not like us studying Luther. And he'd turn up and he'd say, Luther always contradicts himself. And my, my supervisor would say, yes, yes, he's a... Um, he is a paradoxical theologian. Uh, he is uh, dialectical, you see, um, which was really saying that Luther is always on his feet. He's a blogger amongst theologians, and he will say contradictory things because it's just of the moment. Not so Calvin. Calvin is remarkably consistent in his thought. Uh, he's a much more, in, in one sense, poised thinker. So here we have uh, Calvin's theology. And um, Peter, if you could wave at me when, I'm, when I should, uh, when I should start to wind up. Um, the first thing to say about Calvin is he talks about revelation, authority, as we talked about before. And for him, scripture um, is, is the supreme authority in thinking about, about, um, about Christianity and about uh, the, the teaching of the church. So, like many of the other reformers, he returns to scripture and reads it in depth. Um, but more than that, he has a, a way of thinking about how God the infinite communicates to us. He talks about his doctrine of accommodation, which is that God accommodates. God, the infinite God, who can understand the infinite God, accommodates himself to us in the words of Scripture. Because you look at Scripture and it's a messy book. It's a human book in in many ways, right? It is, is a book made up, written by... It is perspired as much as inspired. He will say that God communicates to us like a nursemaid Communicates to her baby by lisping, he'd say. In other words, you talk baby talk to a baby, God is in one sense talking baby talk to us. So he, he's saying goo gaga, if you like. That's, he's talking in such a way as we would understand with our finite minds. Um, He also starts his Institutes with the wonderful insight that the knowledge of the self is the beginning of the knowledge of God, and the knowledge of God is the beginning of the knowledge of the self. It's this beautiful circle, not vicious circle, but a circle which opens up the knowledge of both God and ourselves. If we want to know ourselves, look at God, if we want to know God, we'll start by looking at the self. You'll see the human need in the human heart uh, for God, the human longing for transcendence on the one hand, You'll see, if you know, look at God, you'll understand about the image of God. Um, he then talks about God in the Institutes, and God in the Institutes is nothing more, is nothing so much as he is the Father. Um, the, Calvin emphasizes the fatherhood of God, and by which he means the, the, the tenderness, the tender mercy of God, as well as his authority. Uh, he is not so much king as he is father, uh, primarily throughout, throughout the Institutes. The pattern of God's relationship to us, though, in our response, can be described as being of grace and gratitude. And um, you see this, actually, in the way he taught about the sacraments, uh the, the Lord's Supper, that God gives us, shows us, in his fatherly tenderness, his fatherly mercy, his grace. And the proper way to respond to grace is not through um, treating it as a piece of exchange. You don't pay money when you receive a gift, you respond with gratitude, and so for Calvin, the human response—the response, the, response of the proper human uh, response in, in to God's grace—is always to give thanks. And you hear this um, in the Anglican words of administration when you, um, you you feed on Him in your heart with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving, it's right there. Um, that thanksgiving element that that creeps into the Reformation liturgies um, as a response on the human side to God's grace, Um, very prominent. Um, The doctrines of election and predestination, Calvin is probably known best for. And The trouble is, that is true, that he is a theologian uh, who speaks about predestination and election, but it's not the whole of Calvin. And in fact, as he would try and explain, and the later reformers uh, would try and explain as well, um, the doctrine of election and predestination—that God chooses us prior to our choice of Him, that salvation is all of of, uh, of God's choice—is um, is understood in a fleshly way. Um, does does turn into what Calvin would call a hor- the horrible decree. It does. It does seem like a remorseless thought. But his his attempt in describing. That, uh, describing the doctrine of predestination, that God chooses us, God chooses those who are going to be saved, and by extension chooses those who won't be, was to show that salvation is all of grace. That human, human choice is not, is not dependent on human choice, because if that's the case, then in fact human beings are justified in themselves. And so that there's a logical sense in that. But the other thing is that he, he's trying to say that the doctrine of election that God chooses us is the basis for our confidence and assurance, not for us to feel uh, unsure. Uh, and so the shift is that in the, um, in the Roman Catholic worldview, world you've got the kind of tangible signs that you are saved. You go and you get baptised, uh, you take the Lord's Supper, and kind of t- you're a member of the Church, and you're, tang- you're tangible signs that you are actually in God's favour. If you say that those are not actually signs of God's favour, then how do you know you're in God's favour? Calvin would say, be, be confident because Scripture teaches that God chooses, chooses you. Even when you feel full and beset of doubt, with doubt, then in fact you could be confident of God's choice. And what, the way Calvin helped us pastorally there is he said, don't speculate. We haven't got God's list of who's in and who's out. We don't know. Look to Christ. Christ is what he would call the mirror of our election. If you want to know whether you're chosen by God or not, look to Christ. Um, if you're looking to Christ, he says, then you'll find that you're chosen. If, you're, if you look at Christ, you'll see that God so loved the world, that God loves you, uh, that he gave his only son. So that's how he explains it as a pastoral problem. The doctrine of election and predestination become a more a tricky pastoral problem for people in, um, in Calvin's uh, Calvin's descendants if intellectual descendants um, particularly over this issue of whether you, how do you know you're one of the predestined or not one of the elect Calvin like the other reformers taught that justification is by God's grace through faith um, he, taught, he taught that as uh, learning that from Luther and the others um, but he also taught that sanctification the process that we become holy happens in a simultaneous way to that that just as God makes us justify, makes us right legally with, uh, with uh, in, in, in the kind of divine court. He also makes us holy at the same time. These are not separate things. They're just different ways of describing the same process. And so for him, very central to his, theolo- his theological thinking was the idea that we are united with Christ. And this is not a new thought. It's a biblical thought, and it's not a new thought for theology. Very central for Calvin, that by the Holy Spirit, uh, we, we find ourselves uh, united to Christ and we have we have our union with him. It's an, uh, it's an idea which is profoundly personal um, so it's not just legal his idea of, um, of being right with God is not just a legal one but actually a, a deeply spiritual one he actually becomes known as the theologian of the Holy Spirit which people don't know uh, very much but uh, the Holy Spirit is a very uh, large feature of his uh, theological system and especially in this doctrine of being united with Christ Lastly, he's got lots to say about the church and the sacraments. Of course he does. Um, he doesn't want to say that if you... Because people are saying, look, I, I was baptised in the Roman Catholic Church, but now I don't, I don't think that that's a true church. So um, I've separated from that or I've been excommunicated. So do I have to be rebaptized? Is there something... Was that invalid? And he says, look, no, a true church is where the, where the word of God is preached, is truly preached and the sacraments are rightly administered. I think I've got that on the back there, one of those quotations there. The church, um, wherever we find the word of God surely preached and heard, and the sacraments administered according to the institution of Christ, there is not to be doubted as a church of God. And he wouldn't deny that this was, uh, this was possible um, uh, in, in any church. It wasn't a insti- matter of institution, um, a, a, an institutional affiliation. It was a matter of these two things. Um, that constituted the church, and see, because they are means, the means of grace, the ways in which God reaches out to us through His Word and by the sacraments, uh, them being duly administered. His theology of the sacraments was not quite what Zwingli's was. You might remember from last week, Zwingli and Calvin fell out over the sacraments. Calvin uh, mediated between them. Zwingli just said it was a memorial meal, a sort of remembrance feast. Uh, Luther would say, no, 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 the presence of Christ is in the elements of bread and wine. It's actually in them somehow, spiritually. Uh, He wouldn't go as far as the Roman Catholic metaphysicians, the medieval metaphysicians who said, who had a very sophisticated way of explaining this, called transubstantiation, but he believed in what we call the real presence. For Calvin, a bit of a midpoint, he says... I don't believe that the presence of Christ is in the actual tangible things in that sense. It's not as if Christ somehow pops into the actual elements. But Christ is there by faith, is present to us, because he's present to us in the word. What we have in the sacrament is an enacted word. Uh, We have an enacted word, and so by faith... Um, Christ is there. Is a, the presence of Christ is with us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, or as we have the uh, have baptism um, performed upon us. So, uh, so that's why again the Anglican the Anglican uh, words of distribution. will talk about um, about the way in which we are, Christ is present to us by faith. Um, and so that's not a it's not a metaphysical thing that happens in the sense of inhabiting uh, uh, physical items. Like, like bread and wine but in fact in the, in the hearing of the word in the hearts of the believer that's how it happens okay so that's a, a brief journey very brief journey uh, you could give a lecture on each of those um, mercifully you haven't had that um, the influence of Calvin an extraordinary influence really um, the, Calvin and Calvinism is an interesting uh, discussion a very um, heated scholarly discussion how much is Calvinism like what Calvin taught certainly Calvin is a humanist those that came after him and especially tried to systematise his thought further a hundred years later um, they didn't necessarily follow that humanist way of thinking, they they returned to medieval um, thinking and they systematised his thought using the thought of Aristotle and others and so you can see a, a much more um, a tightly logically argued and perhaps less than persuasive uh, way of, um, of using his thought um, but uh, uh, and, and calvin's um, uh, calvin 's heritage um, becomes a, a, a much more tightly buttoned down system than you find in calvin um, you can you could certainly say that though there 's controversy about the lines of influence the reformed churches of the world would take their their lead from from John Calvin as one of their great forebears um, the word reformed is a broader word than Calvinistic, but certainly the influence of Calvin is within, within the reformed churches is, is supreme. And you find, of course, reformed churches in Scotland, and uh, the, the, the English exiles that uh, came out from under uh, Queen Mary in the 1550s ended up in Geneva, and then many of them returned to England, but also to Scotland and helped um, set up the Church of Scotland. Uh, you see that in, in Holland. Calvinism had a massive influence and of course, over the Puritans who went to America in the um, century following. So, Puritanism um, bequeathed to America uh, the love of democracy that um, that in fact uh, Calvin was very was very much interested in. So, Calvin was interested in a very democratic style of church government, and also in a, in a very democratic style of state um, state government. And so, uh, that becomes a feature of um, the. The, what the Puritans want for their new, for their new world. Um, you see, today, in fact, uh, Calvinism is probably strongest in a, a place like Korea, uh, where the Presbyterian Church is um, is flourishing, uh, as it is nowhere else. In fact, um, so remarkably, Seoul is probably the Geneva of today. Um, so I have said, democracy is kind of one of the legacies that Calvin had. I have to say, um, I learnt a lot uh, from. Um, the great novelist Marilyn Robinson, um, who, w- while not a conservative Christian in particular, would say that Calvin is, her most, is a great lover and surprising lover of Calvin and would say that the quality of the culture and politics of New England um, uh, owe, owe a, an immense debt to Calvin. Uh, and lastly, his influence on uh, economics and work... Um, is something we could discuss uh, probably at great, greater length, but Trent, this was the analysis of Weber in his uh, discussion about Protestantism and, uh, and capitalism. Um, we shouldn't think of it as negatively as he did, though. In fact, um, uh, Calvinists have been not withdrawers from society, but great nation-builders and uh, have sought the good of the, of the, of the common good um, emanating from the teaching of this man. I you're standing so we might stop there I wanted to talk too I've got something about Calvin's um, He very positive about science and about art uh, as well and about learning from pagan authors which is again surprising to when when you think of the the um, withdrawal of some Calvinists uh, from society and their hostility towards the world Calvin much more um, gracious in that way yeah. I'm sure you can get that into the answers I will <laughs> How would the three reformers that you've discussed in this series have got on if they'd had a theological discussion together? Uh, that's very interesting. Um, Jan Hus is, um, of course, a century before, and uh, he he would not have understood justification by faith. I think he probably would have he would have not understood that doctrine, or it might have been enlightening to him. I think the the common ground they would have had these strong personalities the common ground they would have had was actually saying the authority of scripture is supreme and so I I, I think that's where they would have found common ground and had a, had a discussion that was productive um, uh, though things get very heated uh, as you've seen between Zwingli and, uh, Zwingli and Luther and so um, whether Zwingli would have been happy with what Calvin had to say about the Lord's Supper I don't know Hypothetical question: If Calvin could be transported into our modern world, what would he think about our contemporary culture and theology? Um, well, that's a very hard—that's a very hard question. I think uh, that, that's very, very difficult uh, to say. Uh, I mean, he's a man of his times, and I think it's really important to see historical figures as people of their times, and therefore, when they say when, when we do this sort of thing, uh, you know, he wouldn't have understood our times in many ways. Um, I think, uh, I mean, he, he would obviously be completely shocked at our at, at, at our contemporary um, at, at our contemporary culture. Um, he would, I think, be uh, dismayed at the distance between the lack of influence that uh, the church has on the state. Uh, that doesn't mean he's right about that. Um, I mean, that's that's an open-ended question you could speculate on for a, a long time. Was Piketty... Being near the Low Countries, a more humanistic part of France, um, I can't say, um, although uh, although being in the northern part of France, it's certainly, um, it's certainly likely and possible. He's just born there, and we don't know very much about his early life, so it, it's hard to say. I do know that his father died of testicular cancer, but that's just, I don't know why I know that. Was John Knox one of Calvin's most influential pupils? Um, uh, Certainly, yes. So uh, John Knox, who um, was uh, influential in the Scottish Reformation, uh, he, um, a rather intemperate figure, uh, I went to St Andrews um, uh, a couple of years ago and there's the the ruins of a a church there and I said, how did this church become to be ruined? And it was because John Knox preached a sermon down the road and everyone rushed out of the church and destroyed this other church. That's powerful preaching. Um, <laughs> uh, but during that period of exile, of course, um, many of the people who came and were foundational in the Elizabethan church were in Geneva, and they translated the Geneva Bible, interestingly, one of the most influential translations of scripture ever, and probably Shakespeare's Bible. Is taking holy orders an impediment to being a good theologian? Not at all. Um uh, it's an operation to have one spine removed, as they say. Uh, did did not many humanists of Calvin time become deists and lead to modern atheism? Um, you'd have to know. Uh, there were people who uh, were on that sort of radical fringe, um, but it be very radical fringe in those days. Really, though, you can trace the sort of the kind of stepchildren of the Renaissance uh, right through to the 18th century. I mean, it's Voltaire around that time in the 18th century in the French Enlightenment that you really see deism and then atheism uh, come about. Um, so, so really, I think that's a slightly anachronistic, um, t- um, anachronistic uh, question. What was Calvin's language for writing, French or Latin? Uh, both. Uh, so um, certainly um, Latin, the intellectual language, and in French, but for the institutes, a Latin. What was Calvin's view of uh, ancient pre-Christian pagan philosophy? Um, well, he, he was happy to talk about pagan philosophers and um, as having enlightenment so I've got that uh, as having things to teach us so I've got that quote on the back where he says you know the uh, the un- ungodly thinkers what does he, he talk them about them? Um, uh, it's just at the bottom here the profane authors the admirable light of truth displayed in them should remind us that the human mind however much perfallen and perverted from original integrity is still adorned and invested with admirable gifts from its creator so um, you know Woe well, betide you if you don't read pagan authors, because truth is truth. That's what Calvin thinks. If it's true, it's it, just because a pagan author says it doesn't mean it's not true. Um, that's a very, I, I, I'm really delighted to read that. It really, this is kind of the, the, the thoughts, the, his, his positive view of creation and, and its independence from the, the... Independence is the wrong word, but its separation from the creator is, is the beginning of um, modern science for us. What was the main reason for the apparent hostility between Calvinists and Luther? Uh, In Prussia, was it primarily over sacraments? Does it still exist? I don't think it does exist because the German church, people will correct me, actually now the uh, Evangelische uh, Kirche uh, is now a union of both Reformed and Lutheran. So I think they've settled their differences institutionally at least. Um, The hostility between Calvinists and Lutherans uh, that comes into play in the the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century Uh, and add the Roman Catholic into the mix I think it actually has political roots so you have in that 30 years war period for instance, you have um, Calvinists and Lutherans opposing each other and you have Roman Catholics on this side and that side so uh, people have called them wars of religion but they're not really they're actually wars of statehood of um, baby statehood Um, those small nations trying for independence so um, things are more complicated than that uh, what does the term Trinitarian heretic mean? Uh, it means a person who doesn't subscribe to the Nicene Creed or tries to alter that, or at least his his opponents think that. So, um, the details of Servetus's uh, particular heresy, I'm not quite clear on. I think he was accused of Arianism, which is to say that Christ is not fully God; uh, he's a lesser a lesser form of God, perhaps not united with the Godhead, with with the uh, with the Father. What is the theological basis behind behind the use of wafers? In the, uh, in, the, in the Mass, uh, beloved by the Roman Catholics uh, and the High Church, and we have them at St Mark's Darling Point as well. Um, and I think they're wonderful because they don't go off. Um, you can keep them a long time. Um, the, the, the the wafers were used, I believe, someone again can correct me, but partly because they dissolve on the tongue, so you can't take them away and use them and give them to your animals. Um, so, whereas unleavened bread does do that, and uh, you, you can kind of take it away. Um, so there was a kind of practical reason for that um, but someone else might, uh, might add to that, um, be able to add to that the reason for that, that particular bread how do you reconcile, I think the trouble was it then became a kind of special form of bread which then looks like you'd only use it in that form in, in, in that service whereas the, the, it's, it, the reformers wanted it to, to look like an ordinary meal and didn't want this to have special to be thought to have special properties um, it's just bread and wine is what they wanted to say how do you reconcile predestination with free will? Um, well, you don't. Um, uh, I mean, that's that's a kind of mammoth, mammoth uh, discussion, of course. Um, um, you, you kind of... Uh, whether you're an atheist or a Christian, you have this problem, right? This is an interesting discussion for modern philosophy. There's been a lot of recent thinking amongst philosophers about whether free will actually exists, Sam Harris being one of those. Um, so that's an interesting thing is that whether, whether we're we just a, a product of our genes or evolution and really any decision we have that we have decisions is an illusion is a very important um, philosophical discussion and at one level unresolvable for us um, Calvin would be much more uh, compatibilist if you like, he'd say I can't necessarily reconcile these two what I do know is that you are responsible for your choices, the scriptures teach you is responsible for your choices and yet at the same time um, God elects us so at the, at the same time, that's the case. He says you can look at the scriptures and you can see where God hardens Pharaoh's heart and also Pharaoh hardens his heart. Uh, so some, in some way, God's predestination doesn't override um, our personhood or our um, or, or, or our free choice at that point. Did Calvin or the other fours have anything to do with the Eastern Orthodox churches in the Middle East? Um, not in the Middle East so much, but there were overtures between um, the, uh, Luther was very positive about sort of, hey, we could hook up with the Byzantine churches. Um, remember that the Ottoman Empire was kind of close to the gates of Austria in the 15, 1450s. So you're not really getting a lot of uh, uh, contact between those churches and, and the Western churches in, in that period because of the influence of the Ottomans. Uh, of, you know, it was a different empire and, um, and uh, certainly one that was hostile to the West. So uh, he, did, he did hope for a union between, for some connection, but it didn't come to anything. Um, so uh, I believe that the Church of England and the Greek Church have certainly had some um, interesting, an interesting history of contacts between them. Doesn't the idea of predestination deconstruct the need for salvation, the operation of free will? This is the same question. As popularly understood, predestination negates the need for the church. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not sure that's the case. Um, uh, the thing is that when it came to um, predestination, as as the history of this thought played out in the later part of the 16th century, with a theologian in Cambridge called William Perkins and others. People became obsessed by predestination. Am I of the elect or not? I've had this as a pastoral issue as well. Am I of the elect or, If I am elect, there's nothing I can do that will stop my salvation so I can do what I like. I don't need to do anything. If I'm not of the elect, then I can't save myself anyway, so I might as well do what I like. Right? It sort of doesn't... It, that sort of speculation leads you into that sort of despair, really. It's a council of despair. And so... Um, the. They needed to readjust the way, the kind of intellectual weight that this carried within the system of, of uh, Christian faith, which is why Calvin wants to focus in on Jesus Christ and why uh, even in the 39 articles it talks about uh, election to life but also says don't speculate. Speculating about whether you're in or whether you're out is kind of, that's not where the focus is meant to be. Um, what election is supposed to do is to turn you to Christ and then also one of the signs of, of election is actually your determination to live a godly life, um, your use of your personhood in, in the service of the godly life, so uh, your, your membership of, with, with and of God's people. And so uh, it doesn't, in Calvin's view, and in the later, later Calvinists as they address this pastoral issue, it doesn't negate our doing of good works, our joining of, uh, of the church, our membership of the church, but actually should prompt it, Since it is a sign that we we are of the elect, our desire to um, know God better and to be part of His people. Could you say more about Calvin's Geneva and the relationship of church and state? Did Calvin bring the two too close or overlapping? I think yes, he did. I think there was a although you're dealing with a small town, and so you know it's one of those things where everyone's on every committee. So you you you, everybody knows everybody, and everyone's on every committee. So inevitably, church and state overlap very closely. Uh, and I, I think this did become problematic, and he did, he, he did. Uh, there was hostility to him because of this. Um, uh, though in theory, as I say, he wanted to keep church and state separate. Um, it was just that because of this overlap, it, it, it became very close, and of course because of the power of his personality. Are there implications for how Christians might be involved in politics? Um, certainly, I, I think in his theology, this independence was certainly uh, really, really well, well kind of sta- well stated. He, he would say. Uh, he he would say that what the state is for the state is for restriction of evil uh, the promotion of good uh, but it's not for saving one's soul Uh, one can't create um, one can't create the new Jerusalem here on earth there is a great debate as to how theocratic uh, Geneva was um, but uh, yeah, I mean, again, there's a there's a there's a book to be written about this implication, and we could perhaps talk about that a bit more. How could you could you recommend a book which um, explains Calvin's influence on Western society? My goodness, I mean, there's voluminous literature on this. I think I should turn you to Bruce Gordon's biography of Calvin. That's probably the best state-of-the-art biography, um, which of course contains um, the kind of legacy of Calvin uh, as part of the discussion. So I think that's where I would. I would go. The other thing is Marilyn Robinson, as I mentioned her before, she's written a great uh, series of essays, and uh, the, the, she's written an essay on Calvin's influence, especially in North America, and why she's so delighted by um, Calvin. She called it Margaret de Navarre, who was a French prince, princess who was uh, a Calvinist. The reason she did that is that she said, if I called this essay John Calvin, you wouldn't read it. So, now that essay is in a collection I think called, anyone know? I think it's called The Descent of Adam, but I might have that title wrong. But the essay Margaret Navarre, if you googled that and Marilyn Robinson on Calvin, you'd find uh, what you're looking for, I'm sure. Let's thank Michael. Our... The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city, or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.